welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that helps you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. You've got this. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss for physicians. I am not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace a need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 67 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I am your host, Siobhan Key. Thank you so much for joining me. All right. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Joan Ifland back to the podcast. Joan is an expert in food addiction, and you may remember her from episode 40, where we talked about food addiction in general, and she gave some fantastic tips about how to uh, manage your own food addiction. Also, if you struggle with food addiction and you want more resources, one of my earliest episodes was an interview with Dr. Vera Tarman, also a very good interview with lots of information about food addiction. Now, the reason why I invited Dr. Ifland back was I wanted to talk about food addiction and kids. It's an area that I think quite a bit about uh, with my own kids and thinking through the food patterns I developed through my life and watching the amount of processed food that my kids are exposed to in the course of normal days and normal growing up and school as well as standard holidays. And it's something I spent a lot of time pondering about what's the best way to manage it. And I don't think that answer truly exists. I think uh, there's a lot of interest and research into childhood obesity and how it's best to manage eating for kids so that kids grow up wanting to eat healthy. But I think this is a complex issue. Uh, You know, as an obesity medicine physician, seeing adults with obesity, there's often complex issues related to how food was handled when they were kids, control issues around food, and things like that. So I think this is an area that warrants further discussion and hearing all different sides of the story, I think, can be really helpful and hopefully helps us move as a society in a direction that allows our kids to grow up learning how to eat healthy and not necessarily succumb to the North American uh, diet issues that a lot of us struggled with. And so you'll hear in this interview that Joan uses an abstinence-based approach, which is true for her adults as well. And since recording this interview, I've spent a fair bit of time pondering and thinking, because we don't go to the abstinence level with our kids. We try to keep an eye on overall what they're eating. Um, But they do have things like Halloween candy, and my girls are starting to bake. And so they bake things that are have sugar and flour in them. And so it's interesting food for thought, and it's led me to do a lot of pondering since this interview. Um, and I haven't fully changed what we do, but it does make me just contemplate, you know, the th- watching with a little bit of a different eye the way food is used in my kids' lives and where we could intervene and discussions that we could have with the kids. And I think if you're listening to this and you're the parent of a child that has uh, childhood obesity or that you feel is struggling with something like uh, processed food, addictive behavior, then I think it's important to try to reach out and find professional help. This isn't necessarily easy stuff, and I don't think it's easy to navigate in our society and the environment that a lot of our kids grow up in. And so trying to find somebody that has an interest and knowledge in helping kids with these issues in a positive manner, I think is probably a really good tool. As always, this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace medical advice or to create treatment plans. And you need to seek out your own 
um, physicians or other caregivers if you feel that you need help in these areas. Dr. Ifland has her PhD in addictive nutrition, and she is the author of Processed Food Addiction, the first textbook about food addiction. And she runs a food addiction recovery program called Food Addiction Reset, which can be found at foodaddictionreset.com. Now, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right. Welcome to the show, Joan. Thanks for coming and joining me again. Thank you for having me. I just, I loved being here last time and I'm grateful to be invited back. Excellent. So today we are talking about kids. Uh, A lot of the people that listen to this have kids and, you know, following a lower carb, uh, reduced sugar, sugar sugar-free diet themselves, I think become very aware of how much sugar our kids are exposed to on a regular basis. Yeah. And I know myself as a parent, I definitely um, really are aware of it. And I'm also aware of how much of it is outside of my house. Mm-hmm. And that happens, you know, without really me having direct control over. And so I think it's a really yeah. interesting topic to talk about, you know, what impact does that sugar that we're giving all our kids have on them and their brains? And then what do we do about it and kind of talk about it from your standpoint with your expertise in the addiction sciences? Yeah. So um, let's start with uh, your, your first question, which is what is, I'd like to, I'd like to use the phrase processed foods rather than just sugar because other processed foods are also problematic. Um, So what what is what is this processed food culture that we live in? What is it doing to children? There's plenty of evidence that children suffer from processed foods the same way that adults do, mm-hmm. uh, with particularly cognitive impairment, which means the the learning. We we see this epidemic of learning difficulties and short attention span, and impulsive behavior among children and. The evidence is that, that that is related to processed foods. Wow. So, um, yeah, a lot of it, of course, is reversible. As soon as you remove the processed foods, the health problems go away. Um, but I think what's really sad is the lack of knowledge on the part of parents and other adults who are around children that there is this causal relationship so I'm just so glad to be here and talking about this. Anybody who wants to really find out what processed foods are doing to their kids, just go on a, like a one week vacation to a, to a, a, to a controlled environment, you know, like a cabin or something, or you can certainly do this at home um, in a week, like a vacation week where you are with your child for the whole week and take them off take them off of processed foods, give them these glorious, wonderful foods, just find out which foods, real foods they do like, and watch. It's miraculous Mm. what happens to children when they are taken off these, I'm going to say food-like substances, because the body doesn't really read them as food. The body's reacting to them like they would react to addictive substances. So it's really fun. I mean, it's, people react, oh, you know, I'm not going to fight with my kids and they're going to get it at school. So I'm not going to withhold it from them at home. It's like, okay, these, these substances are more harmful than cigarettes. So if they were smoking at school, would you say, well, okay, well then I'll let them smoke at home. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> that's a really good point. Yeah. So do you think, um, and I asked this question kind of from being a parent of multiple children and watching their different behaviors around these foods. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we are like some of us are born with brains that are sensitive, more sensitive or more responsive to these foods than others? So you're asking a question about genetics mm-hmm. and also about what might be happening to the mother's diet during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Two so separate issues. Yeah. So um, Eric Stice has done great research in this area. He has found that 
uh, underproduction of dopamine in the brain can lead to increased interest, you know, increased drive to consume processed foods, as well as overproduction. So if you get a big hit from eating processed foods, you're more likely to seek them out. Uh, and if you are being taken out of a, kind of a, a depression um, by using processed foods, then you would seek them out. So two different pathways to development of the addiction. Hmm. And that's one issue. Now, the, the other thing that I, I was just looking at this morning, because I'm working on trainings for health professionals in these areas. So I was uh, looking at some of this research. There is a rat study um, showing that the mother rats that were, at, that were fed a junk food diet or a processed food diet gave birth to pups that were more interested in processed foods. So they had a greater drive for processed foods. Hmm. So yes, absolutely. A child can be born with, um, you know, hyper interest in processed foods, but we have to remember that the brain is highly vulnerable to training. Mm -hmm. so, there were, I've seen estimates that the genetics are only about 20% of the explanation for why some children end up overeating processed foods. And the rest of it is environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the training being like the sort of the classic thing that a lot of us were raised with, like you're sad, here's a cookie. As a family physician, I see it a lot. You're coming for an immunization or something that's scary. We're going to go for a booster juice afterwards or yes some yes, sort of exactly. treat yeah it is um so training you can also say this is pavlovian conditioning it's mm -hmm. learning but feeding and addiction neurons are highly susceptible to conditioning from the environment mm -hmm. so for example if a child grows up in a household where the parents are dieting. Uh, we know that dieting is a setup for binge eating now. The mm -hmm. calorie restriction hyperactivates a survival part of the brain that will drive people to binge. So that child uh, is going to be more likely to diet and binge. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on in the and that's what that child will do. Plus it's, um, the mirror neurons play a huge role in determining behavior. And whatever the other people in that household are doing, those mirror neurons are directing that brain to do the same things. Right. So I think the real, the real value in this kind of a discussion is to know that the child is not choosing. Mm -hmm. The child is being driven by these hyperactivated craving pathways. They are targeted by the processed food industry. And the child is being driven by mirror neurons that just are copying what the people in its environments are doing. And what I take from that is um, the importance of it not just being that as parents, we say, you, you know, you need to watch your sugar, you shouldn't eat so much sugar, but then do it ourselves the importance is that we're actually modeling behavior that we would want our kids to follow. Yeah. Well, so, whether you want them to follow it or not, they will. Yeah. And so it's I think not, like, it's not something that they can control. Yeah. It's a really, I was just looking at these numbers. Humans started to evolve in a species as a species 7 million years ago. Hmm. And the people who survived to pass on genes for those 7 million years were conformists. They followed what their tribe was doing. If the person who knew about food was going to look for food, well, they all went and looked for food, shelter, uh, safety from predators, the weather, everything depended on being in a tribe. You could not survive outside of a tribe. Mm -hmm. So mirror neurons and survival responses have been embedded in our neuro pathways for 7 million years. Wow. Yeah. 
about 140,000 years ago, we started to develop a frontal lobe. Frontal lobes are this very, very thin layer of neurons. It's like seven neurons thick. That's oh, wow. nothing, nothing. So I think one of the colossal mistakes that we are making is that somehow we can teach children. Somehow we can activate that, that fragile, little, thin, you know, neocortex, new brain, and train that child not to choose the stuff. Hmm. No. <laughs> no. You know, people will say, well, I educate my children about it. Like, like, no, as soon as they get in a classroom where all the other kids are eating processed foods, those mirror neurons are going to say, you will be eating those processed foods, and off the child goes. And it's not fair to punish a child. I mean, that's just, that's the, 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 the 7 million years versus the 140,000 years driving that child to what the brain thinks is survival behavior conformance. Right. Yeah. And I think that's interesting or an important point to bring out that like, that's what the, the brain is kind of viewing that food as because it's highly dopaminergic and everybody else is doing it and all the ads and all the marketing that's out there is telling them that this is the right thing. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's their, their, the primitive part of the brain is viewing that as a survival technique. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So um, I think the other thing I like about this discussion we're having is that it really puts into perspective this idea that we're making choices regardless of age. Because mm-hmm. if you have an obese two-year-old, uh, that two-year-old did not make all those choices to become obese. The, the two-year-old's not even old enough to have childhood issues yet. Mm-hmm. So just it begins to be clear that some other mechanism other than choosing is at work here. And I think that's so important for people to just get way deep down on the inside because the, oh, I chose to do that leads straight to self-hatred, self-blame, self-stigmatization. And I see everybody to know that, no, you didn't choose that. That was just some real reflexive automatic neuron control over behavior. That's not a choice. Totally. And I think that's really important in that, you know, both of us, I think, see this in the people we work with is when somebody has struggled with their weight and struggled with their eating choices and felt out of control, there's a lot of shame and blame that they put on themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think and when we're talking, if we're talking about kids, we have to be really extra careful that we're a not mirroring that, that the kid doesn't pick it up from just mirroring us, but also that we're not placing that on the on the child for the choices that they make or the food that they're attracted to yeah again they're not making choices yeah. the foods that they are helplessly reacting to yeah i'll give you a story uh, that illustrates this so my daughters knew really well what happened to them when they eat processed foods and they really stopped doing it because they they made that association and also because at home they were getting a tremendous amount of support for not picking up those foods. But one day, um, my daughter, when she was about 14 years old, got in the car, I was picking her up from school, and she said, Mom, there was a pool party, and there was this particular suite on the table, and I ate two of them, and now I'm so irritable I can't stand myself. That's a direct quote. Hmm. And so I, you know, the, the last thing, the worst thing, the most damaging thing I could have said was, why'd you do that? Right. I knew exactly what had happened. She was out of her environment. Her brain was like looking around for cues as to what to do. Oh, everybody's eating this. Oh, this food's available. Okay. Well, we'll eat that too. I knew that's what had happened. That the you know, the most primitive, most powerful parts of the brain had gotten activated to the point where those parts of the brain were controlling her behavior. Mm-hmm. It wasn't this little flimsy frontal lobe that knows that if I eat that, I'm going to suffer. No. So what I said to her was, oh gosh, I'm sorry that happened. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't want her to think that she had control or that she could have made a different choice. Her brain, her, you know, the, the 7 million part of the year old part of the brain just, you know, looked at the neocortex and said, you don't get to have control. We get to have control. And she picked it up and ate it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that brings up, like, if you are a parent who's trying to, you know, watch what their kids are exposed to, how do you navigate that in today's society? So it's very clever. It's very clever. This is a terrific secret. And the parent has to be able to stand way, way back and let this normal biological process take over the child. Mm. Oh, I'm not fighting about it. Okay, so here's how it works, which is it only takes four to five days for the gut biome. These are all the, the non-human organisms in the gut that actually regulate a lot of our mood and our digestion and our health. But there are billions of these microorganisms they're not human, but they help break down food and they also travel. We know they travel to the brain and have a huge impact on mood. Okay, so here's the cool thing. Mm -hmm. It only takes four or five days to repopulate a gut. So if you stop eating the foods that uh, encourage the growth of bad bacteria, in other words, processed foods, mm -hmm. those bad bacteria die off and they are eliminated. And I do think that's an element in the distress of withdrawal. So you've got these bad bacteria who are, as they're dying are putting off um, toxic substances. Okay, so great. At the end of five days of clean eating, you don't have those bacteria anymore. And, and then the second thing is happening, which is the liver, which is constantly monitoring what enzymes it needs to produce to break down food. The liver says, oh, great, no more processed foods. Well, I don't have to stockpile the chemicals to make those enzymes to break down processed foods. Yay. So what happens is the next time that child eats a processed food, there's no breaking down of the toxicity. And so the child is immediately sick. Hmm. And as sad as it is to say that, that is exactly what you want to have happen. So I knew I had enough codependency training and I had a great therapist in January of 1996 when I got off of sugars and flowers and realized that it was driving my irritability, my raging, my meltdowns, my critical nature, my unhappiness, my anxiety because it all faded away within a couple of weeks. And then I turned and I looked at my kids and I said, wow, I'm giving you foods that make you irritable with me. Mm -hmm. I think I'll stop doing that. So I sat them down with the list of clean foods and I said, I'm processed foods. I said, circle everything that you like. And um, they liked a lot of those foods because I was a cook. I put real meals on the table in addition to the other things that were in our household. And so there were tons of foods that they already liked, like roast chicken and raspberries and green peas and sweet potatoes, et cetera, et cetera. They, they liked those foods. So um, I said, you have your allowance and what you do at school is none of my business. And what happened, that was January, and towards the end of January, I started to give them clean food uh, at home. And then also, when they left for school in the morning, they had breakfast, they had lunch, and they had two snacks. And then if I picked them up at five o'clock from school, I already had their dinner in the car because we had a, often a long ride, you know, like an hour's ride home. I was not going to let them be hungry and irritable on that ride home, they ate dinner on the ride home. So I developed this whole system of making large quantities of food. I had the two girls and my husband, and we just made large quantities of food. It takes about the same amount of time to put a salmon filet this big in the oven as a salmon filet this big. You know, so it doesn't really take that much more time 
to make food, clean food for family four. And we did all the cooking on Sunday afternoon. And then I froze half of it. So midweek, we would have eaten through half of it. And I'd start to get the frozen stuff out of the freezer. It's not time consuming if you know what to do. And it's not expensive. Mm -hmm. So here's what happened. That was late January. And these girls continued to buy processed foods at school because, of course, their school was stuffed with them. <laughs> and nonetheless, they started to get results uh, just right away. And they were able to sit down and do their homework. Their grades went up. Their athletic performance went up. Their popularity went way up because they were more confident and outgoing. Okay, so that takes us to the middle of March in which uh, we went on a 10-day vacation, a road trip. So back in January, I talked to my therapist about this situation and she said, well, Joan, if you were trying to give up cigarettes, you would not let your kids bring cigarettes into the house. You wouldn't pay for them. You wouldn't go get them and you wouldn't let them smoke in front of you. Mm -hmm. I said, well, absolutely right. So she said, so they're not allowed to bring processed foods in the house. They're not allowed to eat them in front of you. You're not going to take them to get them and you're not going to pay for them. So those were the rules, the rules. Mm -hmm. And that meant that come March, when we were all together for 10 days, they completely got through withdrawal and their guts completely repopulated. So when they went back to school and they tried to buy that cinnamon mud for breakfast, their, their noses swelled up, they got stuffy, they got irritable, they couldn't keep their eyes open, the teachers were yelling at them, nobody wanted to talk to them because they were so crabby, and they got it. Hmm. They just said, I don't like this. And so they started eating the breakfast that I sent with them. But this is how you navigate. Use the body's own, um, the body's own processes and never, ever, ever criticize a child for what they are bombarded with outside of the home. Right. Yeah. A lot of discipline, but for me, that uh, release from the raging was so huge that I really had no problem enforcing those rules. And my children were so excited that a nice person had come to take the place of this irritable <laughs> mom that they, co they cooperated really uh, fantastically. Yeah. What do you think about, like, so in a house that's not completely processed food free, limiting and having, like, when a child wants more having a discussion and saying you know you, you had some i think that's enough let's choose a healthier thing does that work no mm -hmm. it doesn't so the the what the research shows is if um a processed food is available and the person knows that it's available the cravings just build and build and build until the craving part of the brain has control of behavior Mm -hmm. So people say, you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't intend to eat it, but I got up from the television, I went and ate it, and I brought it back, and then it was gone. That's not conscious behavior. That's primitive behavior. And um, that is not fair. It is not fair to, to, to have something in the house that is driving that child's cravings and driving them the urges and getting control of their behavior and trying to get them to go get it that's not that's it's not a nice thing to do to a child to anybody mm -hmm. you know, so i'm going to provoke all these cravings and then you're not and then i'm not going to let you have it yeah. no no so what do you do because this is the I, my kids are young so the things that come up or that i ponder the most about are things like halloween where you know culturally um it's you go out and get candy and and they're yeah. at an age where that would be really difficult for us to say no to yeah and then what do you do with it because they're also at an age now where i can't just get rid of it <laughs> not that um, what i used to and i wonder like do we dole it out or do we just say do with what you like until it's gone um and i well, none of those things kids need yeah. a lot more help than um 
than that. So is there some parents who just buy the children? The, there's just like the rule in this house is you give us all the candy and then you get to go to the toy store and pick out a toy. Mm -hmm. The rule is that you're required to trade the candy for toy. Uh, some parents have now banded together with like-minded parents and they will go to one house and they'll have a party and it'll be safe and you know what the heck is going on with your kids and you know um, that they're not going to be provoked into cravings. Because if you go around and you're collecting that candy house to house, well, this primitive brain is seeing every other kid collecting these drugs. They are drugs. The brain sees them as drugs. And then uh, that, that brain is going to be very uneasy if your child doesn't do those things. Mm -hmm. So private parties and uh, with safe people is really the way to go there for Halloween. You gotta look at the research. How addictive is sugar? So this one great researcher took a solution of water that was 30% sugar and gave it to a group of rats for seven days. Uh, sacrificed the, you know, some part of the rat group every day so that they could track what was going on in the brain. Took seven days for the addictive abnormalities to start to surface in the rat brain. Hmm. Seven days. So you think, okay, people are gonna say, well, I'll give them one piece a day until it runs out. Okay, well, that's plenty enough to, uh, to really foster that addictive process. And then in the United States, they're set up to go right into the cravings for Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. Mm -hmm. It's really diabolical. Mm -hmm. And so what do you do? Because yeah. um, the, the conversation my husband and I often have is like the balance between not wanting the kids to feel like they're ostracized or not able to participate in things that are happening at school and stuff versus trying to manage this aspect to the best that we can. And, and I find well, it's a really difficult line to walk sometimes. I could tell you something really surprising, really surprising. First of all, there are many, many households that have food restrictions. Uh, food allergies are rampant in our culture. Sure. Yeah. They're, you know, they're so rampant that there are whole schools that don't allow peanuts on the premises. Airlines, you know, just no peanuts on the airplane and things like that. So children are very, very used to other children not being able to eat something or other. Mm -hmm. Secondly, um, you know, I had two girls. They were 11 and 12 when we started on this journey. And do you know, they were deeply admired at school because they stuck to their diet hmm. year after year after year, as opposed to the girls who would come in at eight o'clock in the morning, I'm on a diet. And they'd be off the diet by 10 o'clock, you know, because just like too much bombardment at school. Mm -hmm. So my girls were absolutely admired admired for the way they ate uh, in their sophomore and junior year of school. The older one was elected president of the senior class. I think the younger one was elected either to president of the junior class or vice president of student council or something like that. Mm -hmm. So these were very, very popular girls. And um, yeah, it's not, it's not a problem. Now, what is a problem is when you have an adult who's pushing sugar on a child, pushing processed foods on a child. But I will say one of my, I think my earliest client, uh, so this is going back almost, uh, almost 24 years, came in because her two-year-old had been kicked out of the third nursery school, a two-year-old. So we figured out a food plan for this kid and the whole family. And uh, he did fine. You know, he did fine in the next school. So one day um, he came home because they'd given him sugar right before they let them into the parents' cars. What are they thinking? This poor kid came home, got on his tricycle, 
rammed it into the concrete steps in the backyard, backed up, rammed it in again, backed up for an hour. Hmm. And then he came in and he said, this is a two-year-old. He said to his mom, I'm never eating sugar again. So this is another piece which the parent, I think, owes the child, which is to connect the dots. This headache, this irritability, this fatigue, this, it's connected to what you ate. So I think we owe them that. Just like the daughter who said, I ate that and now I'm so irritable I can't stand her myself. She completely understood the relationship between eating and mood. So educating, not like not spending the time educating about don't eat sugar, sugar's bad for you, but educating that right now when you have this headache, this is probably because last night you ate, you know, a lot of processed food and, and sugary foods. Yeah, yeah. And make it more so real to them. Is create a natural aversion. Mm -hmm. Okay, we don't touch the hot stove because it burns and it hurts. And we don't eat those foods because they hurt us. It hurts. It's painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to be sick. And maybe I'll miss something because I'm sick. Mm -hmm. I remember the day that um, I pulled up to school to pick up those kids and there were no other cars there. I thought, oh my God, did I miss a holiday? Was this a day off? And now they were sitting there waiting for a minute. So where's everybody else? He said, mom, we were the only kids in school today. Everybody else, else is out sick with the flu. Hmm. Yeah. It's very powerful. Very powerful. And so do you think to get benefits, does it have to be absolute? Like, is it no. like in an adult where it has to be abstinence? Uh, let me, let me just flip that question. It's an excellent question. The processed foods will make that child sick every time. Yeah. So if you're with the child, you really, I, I just, I hear these stories and they make me cringe. I have, uh, I heard the story about a person who was at their faith organization. And the, I mean, they had broadcast to this faith organization that they didn't want anybody to give their children processed foods. So here comes this woman with some processed food item. And she's handing it to one of the, her kids. She's like, here, this is for you. And so I had this person telling the story just like had to like put her body in front of her child. You know, she's saying to the other adult, no, my children don't eat that. Oh, they can have this, you know, like it's really bad out there. So it is the other adults, really. Mm -hmm. That two-year-old learned how to say, no, thank you. But, um, you know, you have to realize that most adults are addicted to some degree. Americans eat a pound per person per day of mm -hmm. sugars, gluten-containing flours, high-fat dairy, and french fries. Mm -hmm. Most Americans are, would meet at least two of the diagnostic criteria. You know, they would, they would meet the criteria for cravings, maybe some unintended use or use in spite of knowledge of consequences or failure to cut back. Those mm -hmm. are all diagnostic criteria for addictions. So most adults are addicted. And mm -hmm. those adults are, then are in charge of our children grandparents oh my god just really really um you know parents are left with really desperate situations decisions like i don't think i can leave my children with my mother hmm. i've talked to her about this 10 times and my children come home sick from her household it's you know you wouldn't if the children were being neglected or if they were in some other kind of danger, we're really clear about those things. Um, but this whole, the processed foods and drinks are so deeply ingrained in our culture that we don't recognize them uh, for being the danger that they are. Yeah, I think the opposite is true. Like, you know, for a lot of people, those foods are viewed as either for some people, I think they're viewed as an important part of, enjoyment of life right, right. or or um 
yeah, some people view them as like important treats, right? Like, yeah, you can yeah. eat healthy, but then yeah. what would life be like without this, right? And yeah. very little general population knowledge about the impact of those foods. No, I've just been doing some research about the early 1980s. How did this happen? Where was our government? And the food pyramid that came out in the 1980s, the whole bottom row, like what we were supposed to eat most of, were mm -hmm. all refined carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Two really major uh, studies showing that uh, the problem with heart disease was fats, not carbohydrates. It is the exact opposite. But these two researchers were, were quite corrupt. The, the one from Harvard, who ran the USDA dietary guidelines process, had been paid off by the sugar industry. Mm. And Ansel Keys just very clear retrospectively that he had... Uh, deliberately left out half of his data. Yeah. The half of the data that would have shown that there's no relationship between cholesterol and heart disease. He just left it out because he wanted to show that there was a relationship between cholesterol and heart disease. So these two people were able to exert a huge influence on, uh, first there was a Senate committee, the McGovern committee that came out with this finding that people should cut back on fat and eat more carbohydrates. And that's exactly what showed up in the food pyramid. Amazing, shocking to really be putting this together. Mm -hmm. But I think people like you really want to be able to explain. We have to be able to explain to our patients what happened. Because, you know, all hundreds of millions, maybe 2 billion people on the earth now, believe that they somehow they individually are responsible for for why they keep eating bad foods mm -hmm. and when you when you can explain to them no 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 there were these corrupt researchers and they influenced the US put out this food pyramid and all these had all these addictive harmful refined carbohydrates in them they're like oh it's not my fault I'm like no it's not your fault mm -hmm. yeah yeah, we're still we're still coming out from underneath all of that. I mean, we will be for decades. <laughs> I think there's so many, um, you know, additional things we could talk about, but probably don't have time today. Like the, you know, just um, policies regarding food and children. Like, um, mark. There's starting to be some movement towards taking away marketing of food towards kids and things. Yes. Like that, yes. Yes. That's yeah. something else that I learned quite recently. Um, I'm gonna get, I'm not gonna be able to remember the year, but somebody dropped off forty thousand documents from inside the tobacco industry at the University of California, San, San Francisco. Stan Glantz, L-A-N-T-Z, was in charge of the project to go through these documents. Well, just recently, this year, he and his team published an article. They had gone back through these documents and they had found discussions. This is so hard to talk about. It's just so hard to imagine. But there were, they, um, one of the tobacco companies bought Hawaiian Punch oh. in the 1960s. And they had tremendous marketing expertise around selling a box of cigarettes, a box of 20 cigarettes color, shape, distribution, flavor, the whole thing. They, they could, you know, they did. Two-thirds of American adults smoked. Yeah. So their ability to take this incredibly harmful, disgusting product, cigarettes, and turn it into something sexy and rebellious and sophisticated was amazing. I mean, that's amazing marketing expertise. Mm-hmm. So what were they after when they bought Hawaiian Punch? They wanted to take that expertise and use their knowledge of nicotine addiction to create sugar addiction in children. Wow. So then you see the juice box. And all of a sudden you see the juice box look a heck looks quite a bit like a pack of cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And so you have this very powerful, very sophisticated, very... Ah, experienced industry, the tobacco industry, coming in and buying 
Kraft and General Foods and Nabisco in the mid-1980s. And I just have to think that they, they, they couldn't believe their good fortune. They knew that those refined carbohydrates were addictive. They'd just been battling the government. The government's finally uh, getting them to stop marketing nicotine. Mm-hmm. And then here they come across this whole other class of addictive substances in which they have 20 years of marketing expertise. Not only is the government not uh, regulating it, they're promoting it in the food pyramid. So, you know, it's very, very odd. If you look, you know, bing, bing, bing. In 1985 and 1987, billions of dollars were suddenly, very suddenly invested by the tobacco industry in processed foods. Hmm. I think that's what happened. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so... Wrapping up, just kind of last minute practical tips or kind of summary for what parents can do. Go, do you mind if I mention a, a website of resources? Yep. Okay. So go, it's a free website. Uh, I put up all these handouts for you guys. It's called Food Addiction Resources. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there you will find the list of excluded foods. You may not want to start there. You may want to start with the list of unprocessed foods. I mean, just get some practice making those foods. Just get comfortable with producing those foods inside your home. And then uh, and, and just gently, you know, kind of just leave these handouts around for other adults in the household there's a great handout called the diseases associated with processed foods. So gently start to educate the other adults in the household. And above all, enjoy the power of control over mirror neurons. Mm -hmm. So if you are eating in a certain way, it's just a matter of time before the other humans, adult and and, uh, young and old alike, start to gravitate in that direction. So you have control over your own behavior. The other really powerful thing that people have control over is the smell in the household. So if you get out your crock pot all the time and you've got these nice proteins cooking away in there, the primitive part of the brain is going to say, oh, that, that's available, that food's available. No, 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 let's go get that food because it's available. I can smell it. So you got to remember that smell is the only sensory function that goes directly where the brain is exposed to air. There are neurons in our nasal passageways. That is how fast a smell can influence behavior. Hmm. So So using it for your to your benefit rather than how smells and foods are often used kind of mm-hmm. against us, like in grocery yeah. stores and stuff. Yeah. And then what you also, you do want to strengthen that frontal lobe. So you got to get that television turned off. You got to get those screens closed and sit with your children, do puzzles, read out loud to each other, do craft projects, uh, walk around your backyard with a um, magnifying glass and, look for bugs and catalog the, the plants out there, go for walks, um, uh, you know, fold clothes, do the laundry, learn to cook, get those screens turned off because the screens serve to divorce people from uh, being able to hear their own bodies. Right. So it's really important. It, you can't say somebody, well, you know, don't eat this because it'll make you sick. They may not even notice that they're sick because they're already depressed and brain fogged and tired. So they say, oh, well, it's not because of the food. It's because I'm always depressed. I'm always tired. And, you know, I just have brain fog. No, <laughs> you have those things because of the processed foods. But you don't, if you're watching television, for example, your brain is, it is not connected to your body. Your brain is connected to what's going on on the screen really crucial to get those screens turned off right. and then do cog do uh, physical things with your children. Yeah. I got to tell you, the rewards are incredible. Just one last pitch. Both of my daughters got into top 10 colleges and universities 
in really competitive years. They both went on to top 10 graduate schools and they are in exactly the jobs that they want and accelerating. The competition is just like, and they don't eat perfectly. I mean, they, they and I don't monitor them, but they do have full meals on their table three times a day and there might be other stuff going on, but um, the rewards are incredible to have your child be like the most ridiculously outstanding child in the school. I told every other month, my, my girls were in a small girl school. I told every other parent, I was obnoxious. I handed out the list of clean foods and uh, no, nobody could do it. Now I understand, you know, here I am 24 years later, I understand they, th this is a severe addiction. And what I was really trying to do is go around and say, hey, I have this great idea. Works incredibly well. Stop drinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's like, no, nobody's going to do that. So, of course, now we have online services. Um, Food Addiction Reset um, is a place to learn about our online services. And soon we will be rolling out our professional trainings. So we need to train health professionals to be able to explain what happened. Because, I mean, if you've lost loved ones and you've struggled with your weight for decades, and somebody comes along and says, you know what, there were these corrupt scientists and they're the ones who got that food pyramid published. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. <laughs> you gotta be able to like, you gotta be trained in how to explain these things to patients in a really credible way so that they will go ahead and get the kind of in-depth support that it can take to get out of this severe addiction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for joining me again, Joan. Oh, I really thanks appreciate for having it. me. I appreciate this. All right. So lots of interesting food for thought to use a bad pun there. Hey, uh, let me know your thoughts. Send me an email info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca and make sure you check out Dr. Ifland at foodaddictionreset.com. And if you're listening to this and you haven't yet had a time to download my time-saving tips to end binge and stress eating, then make sure you take the time to. This is a free mini course. It's packed with useful tips that you can apply in your life, no matter how busy it is, without adding a whole bunch of extra things to your to-do list. Uh, it helps address some of the root causes for binge and stress eating. And the easiest way, most time-saving way for you to access this is to text Time saving tips, all one word, time saving tips to 1 855 969 5300. That's 1 855 969 5300. And the word you text is time saving tips, all one word. It'll then text you back and ask for your email and it will send the course to your email address. Have a fantastic week. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We will talk to you later. Bye bye.